A space to be curious and an observatory offline. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Public interest in space exploration is on the rise, partly due to high-profile missions like SpaceX's Crew Dragon, returning to human launches from the U.S., and excitement around the launch of three missions to Mars this summer. With new interest comes questions from amateur space fans, like how did the International Space Station get built, or how do astronauts go to the bathroom in space? A new podcast from WKMG's space reporter Emily Speck aims to answer those questions submitted by listeners. We'll talk with Speck about the curious nature of space exploration and how public outreach is helping diversify the space industry. Then, an observatory has gone quiet. After suffering a snapped cable, the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico is offline. We'll chat with our panel of expert scientists from the University of Central Florida about Arecibo's role in astronomy and what it means to have such an important piece of equipment temporarily out of action. That's ahead, but first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. Boeing says it's moving ahead on a second attempt to launch an uncrewed Starliner vehicle to the International Space Station later this year. The private company, which is working with NASA to develop the new spacecraft to ferry astronauts to the station, said it will launch an uncrewed Starliner in December. An attempt last year failed to reach the station due to a software issue. If all goes well with the December test, Boeing will launch a test crew in June, followed by the first operational mission December 2021. The Starliner uses ULA's Atlas V rocket to launch from Cape Canaveral. Meanwhile, NASA's other commercial partner, SpaceX, completed a successful crewed test flight of its Crew Dragon last month. The first operational mission, carrying three NASA astronauts and a Japanese astronaut, is scheduled for late October. You can find more space news online. Visit wmfe.org space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The return to human spaceflight is bringing a resurgence of new space fans across the country. SpaceX's mission to launch Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley from Kennedy Space Center, a first from the U.S. in nearly a decade, garnered millions of spectators watching live streams of the launch. The new space fans bring new questions, questions that WKMG's space reporter aims to answer every other week on her new podcast, Space Curious. To talk more about the show, she joins us on this show – Emily Speck, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about Space Curious. How did this podcast come to be and um, what are you hoping to accomplish? So a few years back, actually, my news director kind of broached the idea of doing a podcast. And um, there's a lot of really good space podcasts out there. You would know. You host one of my favorite ones. Oh, thank you. Um, Being nice. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So I said... You know, yeah, I would love I would love to do it. Um, this is something kind of completely new for me. You know, I'm a writer. I, I do video editing and things like that. But audio was not in my forte. And I also said I wanted to be able to do it right. So um, basically, I kind of came up with the concept that space really is for everyone and everyone has great questions. And it was kind of a thing where in the newsroom, if someone has a general space question, you know, like what's, what's a rocket booster or what's the point or what's a second stage. They'll come up to me and they'll ask. 
And so I was kind of thinking it would be fun if other people could just ask whatever they wanted to ask, and then I could get them answers. So I was like, okay, so how do we do that? And um, so I launched a kind of an online form. It's through, I don't know if you've ever heard of Harkin, but it's kind of an interactive journalism tool. You can poll people, you can get people to vote on topic ideas. It's a really great way to get engagement. And so we're, we're kind of getting questions that way. And then basically I'll get a question and then I'll get to work trying to find somebody who can answer it. Um, so that's kind of the idea. And, and the other part of it is that I really want this to be for not just people like us who live and breathe space news and love talking about it, but for people who maybe just want to learn something in their everyday lives that they can turn around and have a cool tidbit to talk about at a party or, or something like that. And, um, so far, so good, because I've heard good feedback from people who say, I really don't like space, but this was interesting. So I feel like that's a win. You and I have been covering the space beat for around the same time. Um, you know, for me, it's been about five years now. I think I, I make this observation that there are more and more people that are turning their eyes towards space exploration and asking these questions and being genuinely curious about it. You know, I'm wondering if you're experiencing that same thing as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, like you said, we've both been doing this for around five years now and we just recently covered our first launch with people on it. Right. Um, and, and so with that, we kind of saw this huge interest from people who, you know, they loved hearing about, you know, astronauts, the dads, the space dads, Bob and Doug. And so that was a kind of like a personal impact. So I think that that has kind of helped the interest, but it's also because of private companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin that are popping up and doing some really interesting things that are just, it's kind of hard to look away from. And I think, you know, there's, there's access to information now a lot more, right? You can turn on a live stream of a SpaceX launch. You can log into the deep space network and see what vehicles are talking to NASA. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's kind of the benefit of covering space, right? Is that we, when we're covering a planetary mission or a NASA mission, we have access to all that information, but it's not just journalists, it's everyone. So anyone can, can say, oh, I'm really interested in Pluto. And then look at all of the images from the New Horizons mission on NASA's website. So that's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's amazing. Like you said, it's kind of like information overload, but at the same time, I think that it's great that that access is out there. And, and I hope that it's kind of inspiring a new generation of, of people to be interested in space exploration and astronomy and all kinds of cool stuff. You said that you've kind of, the, your listeners and, and the folks who follow you and your station WKMG are kind of programming this show, right? They're sending in their questions to you and, and you're doing the legwork trying to find these answers. I'm wondering if you can share some of the questions that have come in and some of the questions that you plan to answer. This first season of Space Curious is pretty much already done and edited. Um, because of the coronavirus, I did a lot of these interviews months ago and then launching the podcast got delayed because it's 2020 and that's just what happens with everything. Um, so the first question and the first episode is out and it's basically, it was inspired by my coworker, uh, Brianna Voles, who's, uh, she's a, a, she's on TV. She talks about the stuff that we write about on clickorlando.com and she talks about it on TV, but she sits next to me at work when we 
got to work from the station. One day she looked at me and she said, how did the station get in space? And I was like, oh, you know, a lot of missions started explaining it. I put it on a sticky note and I stuck it on my computer. And then I basically said, well, this is going to be the first episode. And so I talked to uh, Kennedy Space Center director, Bob Canna, who was on that first mission to assemble the two pieces, the two pieces of the space station. So that was the first episode. The next episode is going to be about space. We have kind of a space junk problem. So I talked to, again, two scientists who kind of talked me through this problem and what's being done about it. We're going to talk about Starlink and these huge spacecraft constellations that could pose a problem for looking up at the night sky and for astronomy. Um, There's also another episode about black holes, which was submitted by a fifth grade class and was actually kind of my favorite question to answer. Um, So I won't get, I won't give away too much, but there's a lot of really great questions out there that I don't think I would have asked or answered if if I hadn't have been doing this. Uh, Emily, you you kind of alluded to this uh, before, but I'm I'm wondering if, if, if you also feel this the same way, you know, uh, the first human launch from, from the U.S. with Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley, I mean, that garnered so much interest in the pieces that, that you and I wrote. Um, if you look at the SpaceX and NASA streams, there were millions of viewers. Um, do you think that that launch, which was you know a long time coming to have humans launch again from, from Kennedy Space Center, how much credit do you give that launch to this this kind of renewed interest in space? Well, I give that launch a lot of credit, but I also give the fact that NASA's astronauts are more reflective now of what kind of our general population is. You know, we, we finally have a slightly more, <clears throat> excuse me, a slightly more diverse astronaut class. So it really means a lot when little boys and girls can look to the astronauts and they can see someone that looks like them. And so we just had Bob and Doug launch and and yes, they're, they're two white men and what they did was amazing, but they also have young sons that look up to them. And on top of that, leading up to the launch, we got to hear from all these other astronauts that have all different kinds of backgrounds. And, and, and so I think that that also kind of inspired just the next generation and, and the interest people are finally getting to see what you know, 2020 astronauts look like or what it's going to look like in the future. So I think it's the launch, but also it's the excitement growing around, you know, space exploration in general. And the fact that we, like we were talking about earlier with NASA and just putting all this information out there, they've been doing a a really good job with, with highlighting women in STEM and different stories at NASA. And I think that that's also really helping getting people engaged and fired up. And you mentioned that's the goal of, of your podcast is to make space for everyone, right? I mean, NASA's doing it. I mean, how important is it for, you know, the news media to make sure to highlight all these different voices and all these different people that are leading the charge into our solar system, exploring our universe? Oh, it's super important. Um, I'm sure that you have faced similar struggles as I have trying to make sure that your reporting is representative of what you know, this, all the STEM fields really look like. Um, And I know that's been a struggle for me as well, but I think it's really important. Um, There are so many different people from different backgrounds doing really, really cool things to advance technology and exploration. Um, So to me, it's, it's really important that, you know, in the news media, we're, we're highlighting that and, and showing what, what it really looks like to be an engineer or an astronaut 
or, you know, an astrophysicist or someone who studies black holes. So, Emily, you have a very personal connection to uh, the space community because you have lived on the Space Coast your, you know, entire life. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what's it like to see this story kind of unfold over over the years and, and, and you watching the Florida space community kind of go through these, you know, ebbs and flows of 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 development and what's happening here in Florida. What what has it been like following the story of space, not just as a reporter, but as someone living it? You know, I was born in Cape Canaveral and I grew up in Merritt Island, five minutes away for, from where the space shuttle launched for, for most of my childhood. Um, so yeah, I got to experience and witness history a lot of times, but as a kid, I don't think you really realize, you know, what that is. And then when I was graduating college, the the shuttle program was ending, right? So that was another kind of crazy thing to happen. And, and I moved away out of Florida and then really realized kind of just what this impact was on my community, but not only my community, the country as a whole, the fact that we no longer had a way to send NASA astronauts to space. It kind of took me moving away to realize just how impactful this was. You know, I was an intern in DC and I made all the other interns go with me when one of the shuttles flew over DC to go to the Smithsonian because I was like, you guys, we have to be here for this historic moment. And I kind of, they didn't really understand. And I kind of had to explain why it was so important. And it was just, you know, it was sad, but it was also a new chapter. And then moving back to Florida and then starting to cover space I don't know. It just, it's kind of hard to put into words why it's so important, but it took me really not realizing for a long time, just how cool this was to realize that it's so important to tell people why it is and why it matters to, to everyday people. You know, you don't have to have an engineering degree to realize that sending a rocket into space is really freaking cool. (laughs) So um, I guess, you know, that's kind of the short and dirty of it, but but yeah, it is it is personal. And I, and I do hope that, you know, we continue to succeed and, and things continue to do well, because it's it's reflective of my community and where I grew up. And, and so that's important. What advice do you have for people um, that want to be like you and making their co-workers go and watch, you know, a space event like that? I mean, how, how can how can people advocate for uh, space exploration uh, with their group of friends or their family um, when there's all this cool stuff happening? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. Um, well, if you can get someone to watch a launch with you, they will probably be hooked <laughs> because I bet you've had this happen to where someone has seen a launch for the first time, whether it was with or without you. And they come back and they tell you just how neat it was or to watch the the Falcon 9 booster landing. If you see that, it just looks so sci-fi, right? So when people see that and and especially when they see it in person and they experience it and they see the sonic boom, I think that that's, that's one way to get people hooked. My other favorite way is to show people uh, pictures of planets that are, that NASA spacecrafts have, have taken. You know, um, the New Horizons mission to Pluto was my favorite. And I love showing people these photos or of, you know, with Cassini, with Saturn, and a lot of people, they look at them, and they're like, no, these are fake, or this is art. I'm like, no, this was a real photo that was taken by a spacecraft, and I think seeing something or experiencing something like that is, is a really good way to get people hooked, or at least a little interested. Emily Speck, you've been covering this for, uh, we figured, five years now. Um, do you remember your, your first story you wrote uh, while on the Space Beat? 
I don't know if I remember my first story on the space beat. Um, when I was at the Orlando Sentinel, they had me relaunch, pun intended, our space blog. And I started writing about planetary science. So at that time, you know, it was the New Horizons Pluto mission. I think I covered the Mercury messenger mission, uh, mission ending. But the first launch that I covered that they that they let me cover, um, Scott Powers, the Orlando Sentinel space reporter for a long time, <clears throat> I really looked up to him and he went on vacation and they said, okay, Emily, well, you can go cover this cargo resupply mission. I'll, it's on a weekend, like, you got this, this is fine. So I went and it was the uh, CRS-7 and it exploded. And <laughs> so that, you know, didn't go that well, but um, it kind of also gave me the kick in the pants to be like, oh, I can do this. I can cover a breaking space news story and I don't suck at it. And so that's, that's kind of one of the things that I remember. It didn't go that well, but it will always stick in my mind as my first, I think that was my first maybe print space story. And it was a national story. So it was a really big deal. You mentioned that uh, on Space Curious, these are questions that are coming from your listeners and, and, um, and followers of, of your station, WKMG. Are there any topics or questions maybe in, a, in the following season um, that you would like to get answered? What, what questions do you have still about space exploration? There is actually an episode this season that's going to come out that isn't really a space exploration question, but it's, it's something that I thought would be fun. And you're actually going to be on that episode. So um, it's kind of a, a fun thing that I noticed as we've been covering all these astronaut launches, we ask astronauts these kind of silly questions. And so I kind of turned that around and asked you and some other space reporters why we love to do that. <laughs> and it was kind of fun because, you know, we ask astronauts what they eat, what what they do when they go to the bathroom in space. And, and we're just always asking this and, and they always keep a a stone cold face and answer no problem. So um, that's kind of a fun one that it wasn't a a submitted question, but I just, I don't know. I had to, I had to do it. It's fun. I was happy to be your expert for that episode, Emily. So yes. <laughs> if any followers any, of the show, anytime know. <laughs> there's a space toilet question, you are my guy. I know. <laughs> well, other than, other than space toilets, there's a lot of other great topics on it. Um, as you mentioned, the, the episode with uh, astronaut Bob Cabana about assembling the international space station is super fascinating um, and, and I learned a lot from that episode listening to it. Um, how, can, how can folks listen to uh, Space Curious? Um, so you can uh, subscribe to a newsletter that I put out every Wednesday at cliffrolando.com space, and you'll get the podcast in your inbox, or you can download it basically wherever you get podcasts, um, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Cool. I'm going to go ahead and send you some. I've got some good questions for you, Emily. <laughs> We've been speaking with good, Emily good. Speck. She is <laughs> she covers space for WKMG. That's the CBS News affiliate here in Central Florida. And she is the host of the new podcast, Space Curious. Emily Speck, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. Still to come, a radio telescope goes silent. What does that mean for astronomy and the protection of our planet? Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. A radio observatory has gone quiet. After suffering a snapped cable, the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico is online. We'll chat with our panel of expert scientists from the University of Central Florida, Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney, 
about Arecibo's role in astronomy and what it means to have such an important piece of equipment go offline. So um, let's start with a reminder for our listeners. Um, what kind of work is Arecibo doing? What, what are the observations it's making? So Arecibo is a radio telescope. Um, it's a big sort of mesh uh, dish uh, that is built into the mountains in Puerto Rico. Um, so it, it observes radio waves. Um, and it's actually what's called an active telescope. So it can send, it can both send signals out and receive them. Um, and it uses radio waves to study all sorts of astronomical and planetary phenomena. So it does things like studies the ionosphere of the earth. So the sort of charged upper levels of the atmosphere of the earth, and then going further out, it studies the moon. We can send uh, radar off, bounce radar off the moon and look at the, the topography and the surface of the moon. Um, and it looks for asteroids. It can actually find just some of these small asteroids we talk about. It can uh, look at the, the, the shape of asteroids and their rotation rates and if they have moons. Um, and then beyond that, it can actually study astrophysical phenomena as well. And this thing is huge, right? I mean, can you all paint us a picture of just the scale of this thing, just how big this hardware is? Yeah, this thing is like 305 or something meters across the diameter of that thing. It's an enormous thing. It fills an entire like mini valley in the mountains in Puerto Rico there. It's, I believe it's currently the second largest telescope in operation in the world as uh, China recently built a, a 500 meter version, similar thing. But it's an enormous thing. It doesn't look like a telescope at all, right? Because it's not shiny and reflective like the mirror in a typical telescope or it doesn't have a big lens like you'd see in a telescope to buy from the store, but it is, it looks like a radar dish or a satellite dish because that's what a satellite dish is. It's kind of a little uh, uh, telescope. It's suspended over that, that, you know, so that as they've said, it's, we're mounted in a, in a, in the mountains, in a valley. So the dish itself can't move, but the receiver for the dish, uh, which is suspended over, it can move around. So they have the ability to uh, observe different parts of the sky, partly because the Earth is rotating and the thing is pointing at different parts of the sky, but they can also do some pointing by sort of moving that receiver around over the dish itself. And that active aspect that Addy mentioned enables us to uh, detect and characterize near-Earth asteroids by sending radar echoes off them. And uh, Arecibo has been used, for example, to discover that a lot of the nearby asteroids are actually binary asteroids. They've got moons of their own, um, which is something that's difficult to do optically, but which shows up really nicely in the Arecibo data. Mm -hmm. And it was it, it was one of those cables that that snapped. And I know that we're we're still kind of diagnosing what happened and, and how long it's going to take to come back online. But I'm, I'm wondering if we can kind of think about some of the impacts that having this this dish down. Uh, could be on the scientific community. I was just going to say that Arecibo is part of some networks of uh, observatories that are, where multiple telescopes combine their data to make observations. Um, so those observations from the other observatories will carry on, but with a sort of missing piece. Um, for these near-Earth asteroid observations, it's got to be looking at the time when the asteroid happens to be close enough to the Earth to get really good images. So there are some observations that require it to be available like now, and we'll miss out on those until the next time that object comes back around. For others, it's just, you know, a delay in, in, in getting those measurements. Yeah, the kind, of, the kind of good news for this is the damage is, is bad, but not catastrophic, right? I mean, it's, you see pictures of it, or I saw pictures of it, you know, when it first happened, and you're like, oh my gosh, this satellite or this uh, this telescope is totally destroyed. But 
it's actually only a couple percent of the actual, you know, uh, pieces of the telescope dish that are uh, destroyed. So hopefully we'll be able to get this back up and running. But uh, but again, we don't know how long it's going to take because they're still assessing the damage and who knows how much money we have to fix it. So we'll see. You mentioned that there is another um, active telescope that has been online um, that's quite large as well in China. I mean, well, actually, I don't data... think that one is an active telescope. That, it's I'm a, sorry. It's a, it is also a radio, a ra- excuse me, a radio telescope similar okay. to Arecibo, bigger, but it is not active. So Arecibo is still the biggest active telescope that can send signals out as well as... Uh, gotcha. It would, would that, I mean, with that one coming online um, so recently, is, is that able to, you know, pick up some of the slack? I mean, are, are, are scientists seeing data come back from, from that observatory? So that observatory is in China. So the data sharing is different than uh, data from that would be shared from Arecibo. Um, so I'm not as familiar with results that have come back from that one yet. And, you know, the, the, there are lots of telescopes out there. If there was something that like, oh, my gosh, we have an urgent need to get radio observations of this object. That's a telescope that, you know, like if a if there was some event that happened, a supernova or some some event where we wanted to point all of our telescopes at it, that Chinese telescope, if it's in the right part of the sky, because like Arecibo, it's, you know, mounted to the ground, could do that. But in sort of in general, there are so many things to look at. And uh, at any particular telescope can only look at one thing at a time. Um, so this is this is one telescope that's offline for, for a time that has some unique capabilities. Um, but I'm sure it'll be back online. And in the interim, it's only that sort of unique, high power, large telescope, active radar ranging and radar imaging, I think that's, um, that's an irreplaceable uh, capability. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to miss a potential asteroid that's going to destroy humanity because this thing is out of commission, right? There are other observatories that will spot this asteroid that is coming to destroy all of humanity right there are other asteroids or there are other telescopes that'll spot it but actually arecibo is one of the better ones for sort of best determining their shapes and their rotation rates and things like that um to get better characterization of it uh so we might be able to see it and sort of be able to tell which direction it's coming though so we'll know if it's headed our direction i guess so you're saying fix arecibo to save humanity i yes (laughs) To save Brendan, more more importantly. Yeah, from worrying. Yes, thank you. Yes, save Brendan. Yep. We need to get that thing up and running. (laughs) One of the nice things about, as Jim was mentioning, with a uh, radio telescope, is you don't need a super finely polished uh, reflective mirror. You just need something that's uh, a good radio dish, which is not uh, have those same kind of tolerances. So the dish part of the repairs here, I think, are relatively straightforward. The main issue is this large cable which was not at the end of its expected lifetime broke and it's replacing that cable that's the main technical challenge for the repairs here not the dish itself that was ucf scientists and hosts of the podcast walk about the galaxy addy dove jim cooney and josh caldwell you can get their podcast walk about the galaxy wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com if you've got a story idea or question for our scientists, send it in. You can email the show at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or find us on Facebook. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast or on Twitter. We're at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. 
Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.